So welcome everyone to Christoph Krislowski Club. The first rule of Christoph Krislowski Club is of course never spell club with a K as it attracts entirely the wrong sort of clientele and I'm not talking about Mortal Kombat fans. I am Scott Morris and my favourite Mortal Kombat character is Baraka. Joining me today, the FUDs on Films franchise's answer to Liu Kang, Drew Tavendale. I also favour Baraka though, but <laughs> we may have to fight. <laughs> well, it's appropriate for the given it, so um, we're, we're here today. None of this has to do anything with Poland or Polish directors though, right? I'm missing something entirely. Yeah, we've already covered Mortal Kombat, I think, in enough uh, detail. For, uh, no, for, Is that amount any? <laughs> yes, yes, it very much was. Uh, yeah, so obviously we're talking about Krzysztof Krzyzlowski today, and uh, for me at least the Polish director was very much part of Baby's first attempt at sin filing as I approached the world <laughs> cinema section in FOP with a student loan burning my hole uh, in my back pocket, and those three colours <laughs> DVDs were then lovingly taken, put on a shelf, and then I went off and watched Aliens again, or maybe Violent Cop, or any of the other nonsense I've subjected myself to, and uh, 20 years and numerous shelves later, those DVDs remain unwatched. Well, that changes now. Well, technically it doesn't, because I couldn't be bothered finding the DVDs and just downloaded them again, but... Technically, I have now seen them, so that works. Uh, yeah, we'll be looking at six of his films to see if he is indeed all that Andy bag of potato chips. Yes, I think you've got a vaguely similar um, feeling about the Poland, uh, the Polish directors. I do. I think we've got the same kind of story. We've uh, been meaning to get to these for a long time and just haven't. For, yes, yeah. that's, that's similar. Also, before we go on, can I just remark that for a fleeting moment, I thought you said. Um, that the money was burning burning your hole uh, and I'm, uh, yeah. you've clearly got a different back pocket for me but <laughs> yeah Kieślowski I think uh, it's probably almost identical possibly yeah. to being the same shop yes. or at least another branch of the same chain yeah. uh, I was aware of the Three Colours trilogy for a while thought oh that sounds interesting it's got quite a good reputation and then you know it took 20 years to get around to watching it <laughs> go me um <laughs> So, sorted that now, yes. <laughs> fortunately. I guess it's what remains to be seen is whether that was worth it or not. Yes, yes. So should we get straight into it then with the short film about killing? Which is in Polish, Drew? Oh, Did you know? <laughs> <laughs> Just for your ones, right? Krótki film o zabijaniu. Good, good. Um, yes, now... I, and I believe you haven't either, Drew, I think as I said, uh, we've not seen Decalogue, which is the short series of short films based on the Ten Commandments that these have been, uh, this and a short film about love, which we'll get onto, which have been extended to about, about what, 20 minutes or so to make this uh, film. So, uh, but even having read a little bit about them, I was not so sure I was expecting the title to be quite so literal in the description, uh, to the point that the killing in question so dominates the rest of the proceedings that there's almost no point in relating them. But I have never let the pointlessness of my actions stop me in the past, so here goes. Um, Jan Tazar's Waldemar Rubowski is a taxi driver in Warsaw, and he's a bit of a tool. Not as much as Miroslav Baka's Jacek Lazar, however. Uh, Waldemar is lecherous and self-interested, but Jacek seems happy to cause minor acts of destruction and violence. Ultimately, their fates will become intertwined. Briefly, when Jacek uh, hires Waldemar's cab for a trip to a secluded field and brutally murders him in unflinching detail. He does not get away with this, however, and he soon finds himself in court, represented by Krzysztof Gyobski's uh, Peter Balik, an idealistic, newly minted lawyer stridently opposed to the death penalty in general, and in particular to the one that's just been handed down to Jacek. Uh, from then, we move to looking at the crimes of madness, or perhaps as a result of unresolved childhood issues that Jacek relates 
to Peter to the state-sanctioned killing that's doled out in prison as JSEG is taken away and hanged. Hung? Hanged? Hanged. Hanged. Um, meat is hung. People yeah. are hanged. <laughs> but aren't people meat? Soylent green is meat. Uh, so, <laughs> two killings for the price of one. Don't say that Krzyzlowski doesn't provide value for money. Um, so, yes, it's about killing in a way that I suppose shortcuts a lot of the quibbles I could raise about the relative absence of narrative or indeed relatable characters. It's not primarily interested in trying to paint a portrait of or create a deep understanding into the mind of a killer, which does, I think, rather undercut itself when it makes a half-hearted attempt at doing so later on in the film. Uh, also, on the not-sure-by-the-bothered side of things lies our lawyer, Apparently a large part of the film's expansion from the one hour TV origins and an agreeable enough fellow, but one who is not really of any interest or utility outside of some tirades against the death penalty. So while killing is clearly coming from an anti-death penalty standpoint, to its credit it's not being overly prescriptive and forcing you into drawing a moral equivalence between the acts of murder, one state sanctioned, on display here, even if it's not going out of its way to present any kind of opposing viewpoints, which is fine, it's not claiming to be a documentary it's shot in a deliberately ugly way all brutalist locations and murky filters and extraordinary vignetting uh, giving the film a dark tone to match the subject matter it's odd writing this in space year 2019 in Britain and thinking about how this would have been received at the time in Poland where strident debates and soon law changing on this issue was happening or indeed how this is received today in any of the less civilised nations where the death penalty is still enacted. Uh, the death penalty has for us, uh, the highly occasional right wing nother aside, not been something we've had to think about in Britain for, for as long as I've been old enough to know what the death penalty is really. Uh, so this does feel a little bit less socially relevant to me uh, but that's a luxury. Others may not have and if you're in one of those locations then this still has some powerful observations at its core. Given that it's more of a social studies essay than a film, it seems almost right to judge it as a film. Um, suffice to say, it's hardly entertaining in any sort of traditional fun sense of the term, uh, but in, as as filmmaking, it's fairly solid work. Drew, what do you make of that one then? Uh, I really enjoyed this. I, I didn't know what to expect from it. Uh, I thought I had a vague idea of, of it going in, but mm. not much more than that, and I had deliberately kept it that way. Beyond that, somehow I had read more than one place that this is credited with having a big effect on the Polish authorities. Mm. If it did, uh, it happened very quickly, if you look at the timelines. Yes, I was <laughs> thinking, that I'm going to file under, um, well, let, let's try and find a more palatable <laughs> word, because um, uh, um, you may find me swaggly. I want to um, keep us to a minimum. Yes, uh, nonsense, let's call that. Yes. Um, let's give it a citation required tag, shall we? <laughs> Yes, uh, it is absolutely quite clearly, again from the timeline you say it's got quite clearly not the case mm. and also there is nothing in the film to support that anyway. Yeah. However, I did find it quite compelling although part of my feeling at the end was one of frustration. Again, partly from or possibly from that idea that it seemed there seemed to be some idea held of this film that had some actual impact on policy in Poland, uh, which I don't believe, but because it doesn't really show, it's not really an anti-capital punishment film, because it's kind of frustrating, and this is this is the fruit of my frustration. The film tells you it is, but it isn't, <laughs> because there's a scene near the end where the prosecutors, uh, oh no, the judge, uh, Pietor, the lawyer, the defence lawyer, speaks to the judge and the judge says, uh, basically in all my time that's the most eloquent anti-death um, penalty 
summation I've ever heard. Yeah, we don't get um, to hear <laughs> that. We don't get to hear it. That would have been powerful. You know, a, a nice bit of writing from Christoph Piesevich, who's uh, wrote all of the films where he's written pretty much everything that yes. yes worked on. Um, Christoph Piesevich, if he'd like written some great polemic in this that the lawyer got to deliver. That might be quite compelling. It probably would mean for an entertaining scene. It's like, no, they just pretend to happen when they mention it. Like, that, that, that's that's cheating <laughs> and frustrating. What it does do though is sort of it shows quite well how not does it? I think it shows quite well how somebody might respond when they're about to be executed, but at the same time, well, I'm not quite sure what I would imagine it would be any different. And it shows like the guards a large number of them grab him, take him into the execution chamber because he might try to run away. But that kind of seems obvious. People generally don't want to die. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's weird. The more I'm thinking about this, the less I think I liked it. Because I'm not convinced it had an awful lot to say. And while, wa- while I'm watching it, I'm thinking that this... Yadzek, uh, the murderer, you know, he's a bit of a prat at the beginning. And he just... He seems to have killed for such a stupid reason yeah and I'd have liked a more uh, an explanation of why he did that and I mean I guess he shows some remorse but it feels like more fear the more I think about it I'm not not sure this film has an awful lot to say there is a bit of a recurring theme in pretty much everything I'm going to say is that the films themselves I for the most part enjoyed on some level for all of them but I didn't really get a lot of the kind of whenever I read something it was it was about this theme in particular or that one in particular is like I, I didn't get much more than a very surface treatment of a lot of this stuff now yeah, uh, yeah. I would have said probably that killing is the one where I I did get the most of it because there's quibbles with it like you say it, it, I thought it wasn't going to bother trying to make any kind of case for um, the killer's um, redemption or anything and then it kind of makes a half-hearted stab, stab at it later on but I thought that the point of this was to show you okay that, well here's a killing that was done in the heat of craziness or passion whatever and obviously it's bad we could all agree on that one but here's a state sanctioned killing it's every bit as unpleasant and brutal and dehumanising as as as, uh, as other killings are and it shouldn't really be a thing that we should be doing to other, other people either um, and I thought I, I can kind of see where it's coming from in that regard um, but in terms of anything that is being put in front of you it's, it's certainly not doing that and uh, other than killing is bad I'm not 100% <laughs> sure it's, it's giving me a lot more detail than that it's certainly not a film well it says it's about killing it doesn't show you any kind of viewpoint into the people that are actually doing killing it's not trying to understand why people kill it's just showing you people being killed yeah. which is um, again descriptive can't fault it for its title but uh, yeah whether you get a lot more of that and whether you re- really need to be convinced that state sanctioned executions are a bad thing is perhaps a, you know perhaps it's talking to the wrong crowd I mean we're as I say because in Britain we've, it's been a settled question for so long it's something we've, it's, 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 it's preaching to acquire in that regard yeah, but it's just not a thing in Western Europe, and it hasn't been for a long time. Yeah. Whether that would have been different, say, at the time when this came out, where it was still either, still might have been happening in some Western European countries, it would be on the tail end if it wasn't going, going completely, but certainly it would still have been fresher in the minds of people uh, than it is now. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, it's... It's weird. It's. I mean, it, it shows that scene of... Well, there are a couple of scenes in the execution chamber. One's the... 
the execution himself, like checking everything's prepared and making sure it works. And uh, then the actual execution itself. And it's not even like the, there's criticism there and that the people are indifferent or anything like that. It's just to show that these people are professionals doing an unpleasant job and it just has to be done. Hmm. Um, and that in itself can't possibly be the indictment of capital punishment because those people don't have a choice. I mean, the one strange thing was that there's the person dresses a doctor, but I, and that struck me as odd because people who have signed up with Hippocratic Oath have no business being in a death chamber. Yes. But he may not actually be a doctor. I know when you were talking about uncivilised places still have the death penalty, so, you know, for instance, the United States, yes. <laughs> um, where um, there isn't, there are no doctors that go into those places. Um, generally, even doctors, they're administering it because, you know, that's, that's absolutely verboten. You know, mm. Do no harm, number one. But they may always be dressed in that way. Yeah. You know, so whether that's a doctor or not. That's, that's the only really th- only thing there that makes people think this is wrong. Otherwise, they're professionally doing their job. They don't have any choice about that being their job, probably. And so, and also, you want that to be like a well oiled machine, both figuratively and literally. Mm. You don't want people suffering. And if you know anything about capital punishment, it's horrendous because electrocution is torture. Lethal injection is possibly one of the most unpleasant ways anybody could possibly die. So it's a really good episode on last week tonight with uh, John Oliver a couple of weeks ago about lethal injection, which is really worth checking out. It's on YouTube. You should look at it if you're interested in this subject. You know, there's not any great ways yeah. to do this. Uh, hanging, actually, perhaps one of the better ones. And then if you... And while Pierre Putin himself, the last British um, hangman, the executioner chief, whatever his actual title was... Uh, sort of equivocated a couple of times during his life whether he believed in capital punishment or not. He was a professional who made sure that people didn't suffer any more than they had to. He's carried out the sentence. He's not He's not there to punish people and that he doesn't have the right to make people suffer anything. It's like, you know, a job to do. So you want those people being professional, taking care so that it happens as quickly and as well as such a thing possibly can. So that scene in itself can't possibly be an indictment because it, it goes well... The man goes in, he is he dies by the order of the court and it's swift and um as much as it can be, he doesn't suffer. Um so not and beyond what that inherently entails. Hmm. So I'm not really sure where its stand is. I mean and I don't need to be convinced. I while there were some crimes that perhaps could be argued that merit death, I still don't think that killing people is the correct way to tell people that killing people is wrong hmm. <laughs> you know um, so I'm already converted but this film is uh, I think if it had that speech I mentioned it would have been more compelling it's like we've got this Jacek he's not a very pleasant guy but he's young and stupid um, which itself probably shouldn't carry a death penalty because lots of people are young and stupid hmm. um, unfortunately somebody else dies because of his stupidity because I I think there's a kind of a callousness to his character, but there isn't necessarily malice. Um, so we have it anyway. Um, I might have agreed you up until the point he um, strangled someone. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> well, no, up until up until the point that uh, he staves his head in with a stone. Yes. Maybe yes. Um, so yeah, maybe walk that back a little. <laughs> um, I mean, it does focus on the brutality of the killing. Mm-hmm. which I thought was a, a hugely affecting scene because so many films will show that killing is quick and easy. Yeah, Kieslowski here takes pains to show that, no, you, you don't just kill a human being. 
easily. Mm. Valdemar is struggling. He doesn't die immediately. He doesn't die with like three different methods that Jacek tries with him. It's brutal and it's ugly and it's um, a real struggle. And that is an affecting scene. Mm. So actually, yeah, I completely walk back that. Yeah, there's real Mazda because he keeps going through with this. Um, but it's sort of this, the counterpoint to that, the, the state sanction thing, it, it doesn't sell anything. It's like, what, this is the state's law, right? Um, these people have no choice but to do this. And that's, and the judge presumably had no choice but to impose a death sentence because that was probably a mandatory sentence once he was found that guilty. Defen- of murder. That defence didn't work at Nuremberg. It's not going to work for you now. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I don't see where the, the counterpoint to this is that that state sanctioned execution is somehow just as bad as murder. I've not seen many films about capital punishment. And while it is a ridiculous and highly contrived film, at least in life of David... <gasps> yeah, I know it's not good. That's, <laughs> you worried I was going to say that. Yes. No, um, it, it's so contrived and stupid, but um, and like how it goes about showing that you know it's one of the arguments against capital punishment is convicting the wrong person, which quickly no in this case isn't the case in this case isn't the case that was a well constructed sentence <laughs> in this film it isn't the case um, at least that film sort of shows like here's an argument against it because even if it's contrived as to how the wrong person was executed because it's a dumb dumb film actually no you know what go and just cut out all the bits about <laughs> Life of David Gale is probably a better idea because it's a terrible film I'm now, I've just not thought about it in years and I'm now remembering how bad a film it is <laughs> yes. Yeah, it just this film doesn't com- present a compelling portrait of why of like the argument against state sanctioned execution. I mean, I already feel it, but this film isn't selling it to me. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's worth watching, um, but say it kind of falls apart the more I think about it because it doesn't sell its main point. Yeah, I think we, we certainly spent a lot longer talking about the morality of uh, the issues it raises than it itself does uh, <laughs> yes. in this. So, uh, and that is perhaps the point. It probably isn't, but let, let's yes. believe it is. <laughs> yes. Well, let's move on to another short film then, but this one about love. Welcome to a world where people take their shoes off and put them on a dining room table. <laughs> where people butter rolls on the outside. <laughs> and where gas leaks are checked for using fire. <laughs> It's a strange and confusing place, isn't it? It is. <laughs> Welcome to a world where we first encounter what is going to become something of a recurring theme in the films we are discussing in this episode. The Now, I, I did want to research this um, and make sure I was using the correct psychological term of art. So, uh, let me see. Yes, yes, here we are. The recurring theme of the right creepy bastard. <laughs> yes. The creepy bastard, in this case, is Tomek played by the Polish Damon Alborn. <laughs> yes, that works, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Olaf Lubaschenko, a 19-year-old orphan who lodges with the mother of his friend, who, by the way, was also a creepy bastard. <laughs> Tomek works in the local post office by day and teaches himself foreign languages in evenings. But his main passion is spying on Magda, Grazhnia Zapolowska, an older woman who lives in the opposite block of flats, uh, through first opera glasses and then a telescope, robbed from somewhere specifically for this purpose. As if this weren't bad enough, he makes silent telephone calls to her, steals her letters, and sends her fake money orders that result in her being publicly decried as a fraudster by the postmistress (laughs) when she attempts to cash them. 
Naturally then, when Tomek confesses his crimes, Magna goes, Magda goes to the police and has the little pervert sent to jail. Or it would have if this film weren't written by someone who I'm pretty convinced was also a bit creepy bastard himself. <laughs> As instead of that rational course of action, Magda instead agrees to go on a date with Tomek, seduces him, and, after he attempts suicide because he ejaculated early, seemingly falls in love with him. And what's not to love? <laughs> well, I have a list. Why don't you mention that? <laughs> this is a film by aliens, about <laughs> aliens, and seemingly for aliens that is somehow almost universally critically acclaimed, and I'm mystified. <laughs> a short film about love, Krotki Film Omiyoshki in Polish, is absolutely not about love. It's about many things that love is not, principally obsession, hmm. but it's not about love. Now, out of curiosity, I checked how this film was named in other languages, and while the Portuguese, Italian and Spanish titles seem more appropriate, the French and English titles seem to be pretty accurate, or indeed direct translations of the Polish original, leaving me hoping that this that the title is ironic. <laughs> You might think it is obviously so, but, well, a short film about killing isn't ironic. It yeah. is about killing, so, no, there's a fair bit of room for doubt. <laughs> Copious room, in fact. Uh, various other reviewers have described a short film about love as being about the inherently impersonal nature of city life and its loneliness and lack of community, or about the impossibility of love, and I am not buying any of it. <laughs> it's about voyeurism and obsession. Except that it's okay if the voyeur looks away during sex, and that if you tell uh, that if you just tell the person you're spying them, then they'll immediately fall in love with you. Nah, <laughs> it, it's creepy bastard wish fulfillment, and I'm having none of it. Now, there are little bits of interest here, particularly given the time and place where it is set, with notions of Cold War era paranoia and the idea that when we live in such proximity, privacy is as much an illusion as Magda claims love to be. But when Magda's actions defy all logic and credibility, I refer you to my earlier Aliens comment, the film falls apart. Hmm. If indeed it was ever together in the first place. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> A short film about stalking and creepiness. Um, I just don't understand anything that was going on in this. Um, yeah. If it was a short film about obsession, you could maybe make a, a claim that it would be a bit more uh, more accurate. But this is, if this is love, I've been going about love in entirely the wrong way for so long. Um, it is weird, and to be honest, I've just been repeating pretty much everything you said there. It is just a strange, strange film, and I could not get a handle on anything that it was trying to say or do. I, I must admit, I didn't actually dislike watching it I was going along with it just to see what in the hell it was going to do next because yeah. it is weird it wasn't uh, it was at no point did I feel bored or wanting to turn it off but at the end of it I was I was left none the wiser about anything that it was trying to say or what points it was trying to make or what on earth it was trying to come up with um, yeah just just a strange film and a, with a very confusing message if indeed it has a message at all yeah I I did like the film, but yeah, I absolutely wasn't bored, which is weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, where is this going? <laughs> no, why, why should... No! <laughs> why is it... Fuck the police, you loony! <laughs> uh, yes. Um, now, I have seen it suggested that this is supposed to be ironic, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that you know several other en- entries in Decalogue, which of course this is the second um, feature length adaptation of. This is Decalogue six, right? I think um, that apparently this is yeah meant to be ironic, and that a lot of Kieslowski's takes on the Ten Commandments that Decalogue is based on are meant to be ironic as well but but quite clearly they're not all because it's a short form of killing isn't so we're meant to just pick and choose or, <laughs> or guess or, or or maybe you're just talking at your bum mm. and this is a film written by a creepy person yeah. who wants to spy on women and get away with it it's where i'm set so. yeah. it's not ironic though it's just incorrectly titled <laughs> is this is this the alanis morissette school of irony or what, what's going on here i don't know um yeah, no, a very strange and confusing film if you choose to read it in the way that its title would have you have you try and read it. Yes, weirdly, I don't hate it, apart from its message. <laughs> but um, in terms of being a, a... It's actually quite entertaining, in a way, for probably all the wrong reasons. But, uh, yeah, as I say, it wasn't, I, wasn't, I was certainly never bored watching it. But, yeah, no, I just... I wasn't bored, but I do not did feel, enjoy it. I do not for the life of me understand what it's trying to say. Um, yeah, just just a, just a weird experience, really. Also, it's always the difficulty of trying to interpret other people's work. I mean, that's a large part of what art is. It's your interpretation, what you bring to it. But still, like clearly, clearly, people have intentions when they make things. Yes, sometimes they're more obvious than others. But yeah, Kieslowski seems to have developed quite a reputation for like wildly differing interpretations that they're not convinced that the actual work supports in either respect you know? yes. <laughs> uh, and there's also the, the, the ability to again I need to watch Decalogue to, to really get a handle on this but I read a, an article by Roger Ebert who seemed to be really enamoured of Kieslowski mm-hmm. and he's um, he's talking about teaching a class at one point um, about Decalogue and during which they discovered that the Catholic, Jewish and Protestant versions of the Ten Commandments are apparently all slightly different ordered. Right. So people are maybe taking the wrong message from the wrong <laughs> one. Or thinking it's about a different thing. Um, it's maybe not. <laughs> I just, I liked the, he, he ended his little um, anecdote with um, Polish, I said the Protestant, Catholic and Jewish versions of the Ten Commandments are all different. And the Kieslowski version signed mm. one weary student. <laughs> Uh, so yeah um, not that explains it because quite clearly this one is named in Polish by the director a short film about love um, <laughs> yeah. so this one's been not a case where that not one where that's the case but yeah uh, it's a strange film uh, I, I would recommend it but I mean, if you wanted to do the director's work then I guess you probably should watch it again, not boring uh, just baffling, mostly baffling. Yes, yes, a lot of baffling going on. A lot of that to go around, yes. Yeah, hey, I guess that's all we have to say about that then. We're just largely yes. baffled. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> okay, um, so let's move on from the the double meaning of that film, possibly, to the double life of Veronique. 
Seamless, seamless. Yes. As always, Scott, we've got a reputation to maintain. Yeah, we've gone. I don't want to be any work into this. Uh, we've gone from the overly literal titles to the overtly misleading ones, I see. Uh, right, I, I, <laughs> I, I can't think of a way to talk about the presenting narrative of this film without sounding exceptionally dismissive, which I don't necessarily mean pejoratively, right? But at any rate, Irene Jacobs' Veronica goes about her life, visiting her aunt in Krakow, where she stumbles upon to an audition for a choir, which she nails. Walking home, she notices an extraordinarily similar-looking tourist on a bus, but before we can do much with this information, Veronica abruptly drops dead during a performance. Off to Paris, then, with said tourist Veronique, Irene Jacob again, naturally, going about her life as a music teacher. Impressed with the tales spun by visiting puppeteer and author Alexandre Fabry, played by uh, Philippe Voltaire, the feeling is seemingly mutual, as confirmed by a weird scavenger hunt as mating ritual. Uh, but soon, Veronique checks her photographs, noticing extraordinarily similar-looking Polish girl, which perhaps ties into her vague feeling that, like, she was here and somewhere else at the same time. The film then ends. Now, <laughs> I, I don't really dislike the double life of Veronique, but I'd be... I'd feel remiss if I didn't point out that it is, at the very best, and giving it a lot of leeway, the life of Veronica, and also the life of Veronique, who is not feeling leading a double life, but one single life, with some really vague feelings about another life that's alluded to once or twice. But I suppose that's not quite as snappy a title. <laughs> Uh, Irene Jacob does a it does give a very likable performance, which helps immensely. And the romance with Philip Voltaire is as believable as something that's tending more towards the fairy tale than gritty realism can be, which fits well with the tone of the piece. However, I can't help but feel that it should have been doubling down harder on these fairy taleish elements, particularly if you must actually attempt to link the two women's lives in ways other than mere coincidence, which this film does maybe quarter heartedly and one eighth acidly. <laughs> uh, um, but really, I got to the end of this and failed it as a film that I've seen and will likely <laughs> never think about again. Uh, Wikipedia, the internet's ultimate arbiter of truth, uh, informs me that this film explores the themes of identity, love and human intuition. If it does, then I have explored the tombs of Egyptian pharaohs because I was once in a plane that flew somewhere vaguely near to them in one direction and a few thousand feet above them in another point, another direction, at some point, once. Um, <laughs> So it's immaculately produced with likeable performances and some intriguing narrative hooks that made it a pleasant enough watch, but I can't find any of the depth that I think I'm expected to in this. Uh, So I'm not recommending that you avoid it by any means, but I can't give it a full-throated thumbs up because that's not how thumbs up works. It's nothing to do with throats. Uh (laughs) There's a scene in this film, Scott, where Veronica is travelling to Krakow to visit her aunt. And she's on the train, and she's holding a clear plastic ball. Yes. Uh, through which the exterior of the train is shown um, upside down. You know the scene I'm familiar yes. with? Yes. I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. I like that scene. <laughs> because you like balls. <laughs> oh, I love the balls. <laughs> no. I like the way that's composed. Um, <laughs> there's a recurring um, motif in these Kislovsky films of using mirrors and reflections yeah. and distorted reflections and there are a couple of really wonderful shots like that I like that ball it's <laughs> been the only thing about this film I like <laughs> there is oh is it one of the three colours there's another shot that I really like to that is um, a real close up of somebody's eyeball with a reflection in it that's really well composed yes. you know? so there's some really nice shots like that throughout his work but that ball's basically the only thing I liked about this film uh because there's no character there. I mean, Irene Jacob is 
she, yeah, she's likable, but she's, her character is her characters are nothing. They're there. Yeah, really, they're, they're, she has no personality. <laughs> she's just a person that is there with some clothes on, and the fact that Eurasia Cog can pull anything out of that at all is miraculous. Yeah, and yeah, I'm not sure what this film's saying. I know he likes his themes of like fate and like coincidence and stuff, but it's like wait, somehow there's. Um, these they're, they're doppelgangers and they both have heart conditions, but one of them doesn't die because I guess France has better medical care um, <laughs> or something. But other than that, they're in no way related at all. Yeah, it's it's frustrating because if, if you are going to put up this sort of if this is your whole gimmick for the film, then do something with it and don't just present them serially and expect them to just to draw our own conclusions between them when you don't actually present any evidence or meaning behind any of it. Uh, yeah, it's just frustrating. If you are going to make a film with that conceit, double down on that conceit and actually do something with it um, rather than just show some people going, oh, I think I was somewhere else, but I'm clearly not because that's not how physics works. And, and it didn't really inform her character in any meaningful way, apart from like there's a couple of scenes where she goes, "Oh, I felt like I was somewhere else at some time," but it doesn't really affect any of her actions or personality that I can see in any of the other scenes, and yeah. it doesn't tie in together. It's just a bunch of stuff that happened. <laughs> yeah, it's just like saying, "Like I suddenly felt I wasn't alone in the world," and I, I all right, Obi Wan. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's. I don't know what it's got to say. Um, I mean, at some point I thought, is it a suggestion of some sort of time travel going on? Because it seems like those tapes have come from the future. And I was, I need to go back and check now, because I thought at one point there was a like three-year difference in two postmarks on the same envelope. Hmm. Um, but I now doubt myself. But the, the tapes that that guy sends were unique. It felt almost like they were coming in the future from the sound she hears, but they realise what knowledge is that there's a routine in that cafe in the train station, so she's just hearing the same stuff. Yeah. That's how she was able to pinpoint them. But again, we come back to the whole aliens thing, because <laughs> yes. um, your puppeteer man, who has seen uh, Veronique twice, once very briefly across a stage um, and then through the audience at a puppet show, and then once at the traffic lights for, like, what, 15 seconds? Yeah. When he tells her, hello, you dippy person, you've got your cigarette in your mouth the wrong way around. <laughs> um, then start stalking her because all of these films are full of right creepy bastards. <laughs> uh, and he's another one. And then he... She tries to run away from her in Paris. He somehow, by magic, tracks her down. It's beyond me how he finds her in Paris. I'm thinking Paris has more than one hotel. Yes. Oh, so... <laughs> Um, in fact, I've been there, I know that, you know. <laughs> uh, still, he manages to find her. And then, instead of, like, you know, freaking out or kicking him or going to the police or at least saying, please leave me alone, you're right, creepy bastard, no. she shags him. <laughs> what is going on? Um, and then, so after that, they wake up and, and he leans over and said, I love you. No, you don't. Shut up. And then, again, instead of saying something sensible, like any real person would say, it's like, I love you too. What, this person you've not actually ever met mm. <laughs> and who stalked you? I'm telling you, it, it's creepy bastard wish fulfillment by the, on the part of the writer, at least, if not the director. Yeah. And it's weird and creepy and I do not like it. <laughs> 
none of these people act like humans act. Yeah. And this film's a double disadvantage because nobody in this film is basically a human. <laughs> um, yeah, and also, that's what I remember now, and I think it bothered me about this. And the fact that the Ranger Cop is likeable at all is a real testament to her ability because Veronique in particular, Veronica, I mean, at least she has sort of a bit of a career path that she wants to go on rather than abandoning it like Veronique does, the Parisian version, French version at least, um, she agrees to commit perjury for some reason. Yeah. What, what was that about? <laughs> yeah, she will go into um, court and lie to ruin some guy's life. For what reason? No, we cannot get told that. <laughs> right? So she's a terrible criminal person then, and we're supposed to like her. Okay, okay. Uh-huh. Hello? Have you been to Earth before? <laughs> yes. So yeah, this... I, no, I didn't. This is the the one film I actively disliked out of these. Again, I'm baffled by a short film about love, and I really disagree with almost everything that happens in it. Yeah. But at least I was kind of interested in the film when I watched it. This one, I'm just like, what is happening and why? And why are these people not actually people? And no, don't do that. That's stupid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's largely where I came down. This is, no, this film did nothing for me at all. Yeah, I didn't hate it. I think there's, it's it's one of these films that sort of produced well enough that I could get along with it for the most part. But yeah, it is the least essential of all the films that we speak about today. Um, I, and as, as you say, I I don't really understand what it's trying to say or what it's trying to do for a lot of it. So you can't really be all that enthusiastic about it. You never, I didn't hate it as much as you did. Uh, but yeah, it just yeah, just another, another weird film. <laughs> what is the deal with this? Yeah, and, and this film won all sorts of awards too. Uh, I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know if it's another one that you can pick up and run through your analyse filter. It would give, give you lots of things where you can you know, dig into and, and pull apart if you so desired, but uh, the, the actual film of it as in and of itself I don't think merits that level of attention paid to it, you know what I mean? Yes, yes, actually a bit, uh, a bit of a disappointment, this one. Yeah, people were talking about it being all sorts of things like... What's that one? A mesmerising poetic work. No. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah, the movie has hypnotic effect. This is Roger Ebert again, actually, and he's really seemed to have loved Kislovsky. Uh, the movie has hypnotic effect. We are drawn into the character. There isn't a character! <laughs> um, and then you find to split what ab- complete absence of character there is between two of them. <laughs> Not kept at arm's length with a plot. Yes, heaven forfend there should be any reason for anybody to do anything. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I'd quite be looking forward to this film, actually. It sounded really interesting. I had so much praise. I'm like, huh. Hmm. Well, I've seen it then. No, it's a film you'll only like if you're hypnotised. <laughs> well, then, shall we get to the uh, to perhaps the reason we decided to do this as a topic at all with the uh, Three Colours films, the first one of which, at least chronologically, is Blue? Um, so, yeah, as Scott said, we've come to the Three Colours trilogy, something which has been described by many as Kishlovsky's masterpiece, but since this masterpiece has also been identified as Decalogue, the 10-part short film series made for Polish TV, <laughs> opinion is clearly divided. <laughs> Based on the colours of the French flag, three colours consist of three parts, bleu, blanc and rouge, with each said to represent the ideals of the French Republic, liberté, égalité, fraternité. Liberté, equality and fraternity, if you're not familiar with the 
what it means. Though they're sort of retroactively mapped on, as Kijlovsky himself has said, that those particular three words are used because the money to make them came from France, mm. but if the money had come from elsewhere, the films would probably have been much the same. Yes. Um, At the risk of <laughs> crashing into this, and I don't see any connection between any of them and their supposed themes whatsoever. <laughs> so, oh. um, I did, but I kind of wonder if I was looking for it. <laughs> I, I, I found what I was looking for rather than it actually being there. But I guess we'll, we'll come on to that. Trois Couleur Bleu, the first entry, is about freedom. Allegedly, particularly in Scott's case. <laughs> Even if that freedom is not something... Actually, to be honest, I, I saw it more in this film than the other ones. It's about freedom, even if that freedom was not something that had been sought. Julie, Juliette Binoche, is the wife of a lauded composer whose husband and daughter die in a car crash at the film's opening. She wakes in hospital to find herself freed from her past and her present and with an unknown future. Clearly lost, she makes a half-hearted attempt at suicide and witnesses her housekeeper in floods of tears because she is incapable of them herself for her lost family. She calls her husband's assistant, who she knows to be infatuated with her, to come and have sex with her in an attempt to feel something, anything. It fails, and she goes from the home she shared with her family, scraping her fist along a stone wall in her numbness as she leaves her old life for good. Julie then moves to Paris and finds a flat in a relatively run-down area of the city where she knows no one and no one knows her, intent on living a life without attachment, memory or possessions. That's a difficult task for anyone, and certainly for someone as inherently decent and friendly as Julie. She befriends Lucille, Charlotte Vere, a sex worker who survives a petition to have her evicted from their apartment building after Julie refuses to give her signature to the unanimous consent the measure requires. And this friendship inadvertently leads to Julie discovering that her husband had been having an affair. She is also tracked down by her husband's assistant, Olivier, Benoit Réjean, who is now shown to be, alas, yet another creepy bastard, and who, in line with all of these other films, begins a closer relationship with Julie rather than being told to take a hike. She and Olivier work together to complete Patrice's final commission, a concert for the unification of Europe, and it's clear that there is at least a portion of truth in the reporter's assertion earlier in the film that Julie, and not her husband, was the composer which raises yet another possibility of what it was Julie fled and is seeking freedom from. In this case, living a lie, or some sort of charade at least. Meanwhile, Julie tracks down her husband's former mistress and discovers that she is pregnant with her husband's child. Though her subsequent actions are probably not those you'd expect, or for that matter necessarily believe. As with most of the works we've watched for this episode, Three Colours Blue is more about mood than narrative, though it manages to largely satisfy in both counts here. Colour plays a large part in both, and Slavomir Ijak's photography and use of blue hues conveys the sense of loss, isolation, hopelessness and depression that Binoche's character feels, though never feels overwhelming or oppressive. The bigger question about this film and the Three Colours trilogy as a whole, though, is what it's saying about the European Union. If the increased unity of the nations of Europe post-Maastricht Treaty is so hopeful, why is the music so funereal and (laughs) sombre? 
of course. It could just be that it's not very good music, <laughs> which is certainly also true. But does it hint at the director's own feelings, particularly from his perspective as a citizen of now post-communist Poland? Probably. But my bigger question remains why, in a film where this piece of music plays such a prominent role, isn't the music better? <laughs> Whatever it does or does not do, it did entertain me, especially Juliette Binoche, an actor I've always appreciated. She plays Julie sensitively, ably walking the line between detached, even aloof, and cold, and her response to the impertinent reporter accusing her of rudeness when she questions her days after her husband and child died is pleasingly low-key. A promising start to the trilogy. Yeah, uh, just in general, the three colours, I... I wasn't expecting the colour in the title to be quite so literal. <laughs> it's, it's very literal. It's, isn't it? There's a lot of blue, and there's a lot of white, and there's a lot of red <laughs> in those respective films. Um, yes, the, this one, I think I appreciated it mainly because Juliette Binoche is so good. Um, it's an incredible turn from her. Um, really, is, uh, really does a good job of uh, dragging you into this character and, and dragging you along with it. And that's the standout in this film for me. The rest of it, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't dislike it, but I kind of got to the end of it and went, "Yeah, cool story, bro." <laughs> um, but, but I didn't take a lot more from it than that. Yeah, it, it is a film that is worth seeing just for that acting performance alone. In terms of how it deals with loss and bereavement and that kind of thing, yeah. I, 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 I'm not so sure I can buy into it on that basis. I'm not sure I buy the emotions that it's going for. I'm not sure I buy the kind of way that a lot of the characters are reacting in it. Uh, but I can, to a degree, understand it. And I think, again, just because it's such a hell of a turn from uh, Binoche that you can kind of get pulled along with it. But a lot of times it didn't feel hugely uh, realistic or relevant to me. And I suppose not everything needs to be. But uh, yeah, for, for me, this was just kind of bouncing off. It was it was an interesting story to go through. Um, yeah, a lot of it just didn't really find all that captivating him. The, the kind of struggles to compose uh, a terrible piece of music, uh, which takes up what the whole last half hour or something is fiddling about with music, or at least it felt like it anyway, and didn't really seem to be going towards any kind of emotional catharsis, either for the characters or for me at that point. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't really on board with that but yeah it's it, I certainly wouldn't want to dissuade anyone from watching it I still uh, enjoyed for the most part and uh, yeah as I say such a hell of a performance that is worth watching on that basis alone but seriously though what is it with Kishlovsky and stalkers yes lots of creepiness abounds um, yeah. Olivier tracks her down to Paris says he comes to like stands about in this neighbourhood for weeks maybe maybe even longer <laughs> until yeah. he hopefully runs into her this person said she didn't want anything to do with him yeah, ah, but then that turns into well, well, being at least a friendship now, possibly a romantic relationship. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in fact, yeah, definitely because she talks about sex again with him on the phone, saying I'll be right over. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So weird. Uh, I'm beginning to think Kislovsky's always a creepy, creepy guy. Yes. <laughs> also, this is it's an opportune moment to present it, but Kislovsky seems to be really well regarded, almost in retrospect. Certainly from Three Colours Backwards, when people who'd seen Decalogue seemed to really like it, but it, was, it wasn't it was that widely seen. Yeah. And it wasn't as lauded as other contemporaries in European cinema at the time. There have been some absolutely rotten takes in them, though. 
Um, and I know at the time of the release of Three Colours, it was uh, because of its performance at Cannes and places like that. Whereas, interestingly, one of its pieces lost the Palme d'Or at Cannes to Pulp Fiction, and people seem to think that was a tragedy, as, in, as opposed to, well, quite clearly the right thing, Pulp Fiction's <laughs> a far better film, but okay, uh, we'll come to that one. But it seemed to be kind of like an art house darling for a while, um, and for some people still is, but there have been a... Say, I, I don't know why, but sort of around about 2010, 2011, I wonder if maybe that was the first time it was in the Criterion Collection or something. It seemed a lot of, like, pieces that were sort of looking back at it in retrospect and saying, actually, you know, it's not as good as everybody said at the time, but it's still good, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But the, there are some, like, really terrible, terrible takes. I, just, I want to uh, mention one that just it sort of struck me as missing the point quite spectacularly. It's about, because it's about this film, it's about three colours blue. Why does Julie persist in describing the rat she found in a cupboard as a mouse? Is it in fact a symbolic rodent? A rodent of regret? Of conscience? Well, first of all, A, mice are rodents as well as rats, so... B, she probably persists in calling a mouse because it was a mouse. You could tell it was a mouse because it looked like a mouse, not a rat, which are bigger and different. It was a mouse. That's probably why she called it a mouse, you colossal... F- oh, it's a, just what a ridiculous take. <laughs> Uh, that was in the Independent, by the way. It wasn't just like you know, some sort of rotten blog, nobody read of anything, you know? <laughs> National newspaper. It's like, is it a symbolic rodent? Mm, not so much. It's more of a rodenty rodent. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there, there are some truly horrendous takes surrounding this stuff. I don't know what is going on. Yeah. I suppose that's the thing. If you if you make a film that's sufficiently vague, people will try and fill that void with it. I mean, how how many column inches are spent trying to get any kind of meaning out of David Lynch's films? Which is it's fun to do, but I'm not really <laughs> convinced there is much to it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but at least you can believe that David Lynch is willfully avoiding all this. <laughs> Yeah. Either he has very something specific in mind and he delights in never telling anyone, yes. or he very specifically has no idea what they're meaning and doesn't want to. Yes. <laughs> and he will troll you for the rest of his days. Yeah, clearly, this is the one that I liked much more than you, but uh, even if I didn't, I would absolutely agree with Scott with your point about Julia Benesi's performance alone just being enough. It's, it's really good, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Will we move on to Blong? Yes. So in white, uh, Zbigniew Zamakowski's uh, Carol. Carol's a sad sack of a man, kicked out of his Paris home and divorced by his, frankly, awful wife, Julie Delphi's Dominique, after failing to consummate their marriage. Soon penniless, he's reduced to begging, but makes a new friend in the shape of fellow Pole Mikolaj, uh, Janice Gejos, who helps Carol return to Poland through unconventional methods. Uh, still pining for his wife, he makes his way back to his brother and his old hairdressing salon, but before long, and as I write this, I could not recall for the life of me why or how, he has become a lookout slash bodyguard for the mob, whom he then successfully outsmarts of a bunch of money, which he then uses to set up a successful business with Carol, which he then uses to, um, through some poorly or not at all explained mechanics, set up a plot to fake his own death and frame his wife for it. Again, cool story, bro. Um, this this film is, I read here, about equality. I think I watched a different cut to everyone else. Uh, this is the closest to a comedy, I think, that we'll speak about today, veering more towards the dark, but not that dark. I have perhaps skipped over the more amusing situations in the recap, uh, but watching Carol's fall and rebirth has its share of funny moments and lines, and despite sounding like 
total nonsense when condensed. The story was at least interesting enough to pull me along. I'm not convinced by any of the emotional strings this is trying to pull. Uh, Dominic's so unsympathetic from the outset, and by the end of things, Carol's also become a a bit of a Jeremy Hunt, so I am not picking up whatever that last scene in the prison is laying down, other than the obvious callback to an earlier scene in Paris. For for all my dismissiveness, I actually found this quite enjoyable. Um, I, I liked it as a solid comic turn from Zemikowski, and but again, I'm just not getting any deeper meaning or any emotional connection from this. I'm no film expert, of course. I just play one on a podcast, uh, but I'm just not sure there's anything you can meaningfully analyse in here or extrapolate a hell of a lot of meaning from it. Yes, I enjoyed it, but I'm certainly not going to defend a narrative like this, which seems to be one of the more... One of the more narrative-focused elements of the Koslowski films I was talking about today, I think this is the one where it's trying to tell a story, but it doesn't really know what that story is, particularly towards the end of it, where everything just seems to happen in very fast motion for no particular reason. Like, how is this setup actually going to work? It's explained in no way whatsoever. I don't really know how Carol suddenly became a successful businessman, apparently overnight. Um, There's a lot of time compression going on in the last uh, half hour of this film that is not entirely clear to me what it's supposed to be doing. Uh, it's a weird one. I I enjoyed it, but it's probably the the film I could defend the least for actually enjoying it. Um, it's yeah. This, this was I think the one you're talking. This was in the same year as Pulp Fiction, right? Um, no, it's that, it's this, this and Red are both ninety four. Okay. Red that lost out to Pulp Fiction. Yes. Um, yeah. Certainly. Yeah, I, I can see that from both. But you know, in particular, this one. Um, it's. In a, in a number of ways, it's probably the weakest of these films, but still it's one I kind of enjoy, so I'm not going to be too hard on it. Uh, but I, I quite enjoyed it, but I can't really defend it, if, if that makes any kind of sense. This is actually my favourite of the three colours. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, I find this really, really entertaining. Uh, it is the mo- it is the most straightforwardly enjoyable of these films. Yeah. It is the most film that is set up, set up as a ripping yarn and kind of gets through it, and I did like it. So yeah. there's that. It's perhaps the most conventional as well, though. Yes, uh, yes perhaps less interesting for that reason mm-hmm. I, I would have said um, exactly the same thing when I finished watching the, the three viewers but it's like I enjoyed White the most and I still do enjoy White the most but when I had to write something about it it's like this is actually nonsense but I enjoyed it so there is that <laughs> I don't know I mean there are some slightly absurd moments too and I, I suggesting how badly Julie Delpy had treated um, Carol in Paris because after Getting into Poland by hiding inside his own suitcase, yes. <laughs> then being stolen inside his own suitcase, and beaten up by the thieves for having the temerity to be broke, despite yes. having clearly had no money because he was inside his own suitcase. He gets beaten up, left with two French ranks, uh, kicked down the side of a hill into a rubbish dump, I guess, mm. stands up, turns around, and goes, Oh, Jesus, home at last, <laughs> happily. <laughs> How badly did she treat him? <laughs> It's, but yeah, it's, uh, and this is one I can't see quite a lot of uh, meaning in, but absolutely nothing to do with the quality. No, yes, uh, exactly. It doesn't matter. It's, um, it, it feels to me like it's, uh, if not a critique, it's sort of a kind of warning against kind of Western style capitalism. Uh, Poland's just become a capital at that point, and it's, it's 10 years before Poland joined the EU, but several characters say repeatedly um, we're all European now and you can buy anything nowadays um, including a corpse (laughs) for some sort of convoluted faking your own death strategy Um, 
so uh, I can see like that critique of capitalism and stuff there. Uh, not convinced this is exactly the vehicle to do that well in, but I can see it. Uh, mm. But the whole equality thing, nah, definitely not. <laughs> uh, however, yeah, I found it really entertaining. I had this slight problem that uh, Zbigniew Zamakowski, who plays Carol, struck me almost immediately as looking too much like Bobcat Goldthwaite and to that point it was Polish Bobcat Goldthwaite and I couldn't shake it <laughs> and yeah Mikolai is Polish Stephen Rare um, <laughs> basically I'm just trying to find Eastern European equivalents to people already know in Western cinema for, for, these, for no reason just, it, it struck me a few times good to have uh, a hobby I suppose <laughs> yes um <laughs> There are kind of strange leaps in sort of logic, or at least in plot. Uh, like he's suddenly very, very successful. Um, okay, by what do they sell? Stuff. Yes. Uh, maybe everything. <laughs> uh, it's weird. Uh, and you said uh, you didn't know how he got the job uh, because he got the one of his hairdresser contacts. <laughs> one of the people whose hair he does for his, um, the barber shop, the hairdressers, it's now his brothers, mm. um, says to him, you've got a, a meeting today. So he wanders down to the little hut where the mob have their money racket that everybody knows is there apparently <laughs> and is in the middle of the city and people can just walk in and goes, um, I want a job. Uh, okay then. <laughs> because the, the person I cut the hair for said to come down. That's how that happened, Scott. You can see why I might have forgotten that. <laughs> um, yeah, then he sort of... He, he tricks them um, and then presumably lies about having an airtight will that if he dies, everything will go to the church. I assume he made it up on the spot rather than actually being the case. <laughs> yes. but, um, you never find out one way or the other, so I guess it doesn't matter. Um, but then, because of that, the mob at no point get any revenge on them or do anything to them. So, Famously oh, oh, well, forgiving organised crime work, these guys. Just, uh, they just don't care that much. You know? yeah, it's like, They're good guys uh, at heart. Yeah. Uh, we're about to kill you, but now we'll give you $50,000 instead. Okay. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah. Um. So... Plot's not its strength, uh, but I just I found it very funny, and I actually I did not anticipate it going where it went to, because it seemed to me that he was kind of infatuated with Dominique, um, and that he just wanted to show I'm a success, I'm going to be with you again, but it was like no, I'm a success, screw you, lady, yes. I'm going to get revenge. I did not expect a revenge twist. It was kind of I found really quite amusing. Uh, however, I was. A, Vaguely annoyed that the film sort of undercut that at the end uh, hmm. by showing him spying on her. Um, he can bribe his way into the prison so he can look at her through some opera glasses again. Yeah, I, I just did not. That's that's what I'm referring to. But I just could not understand what that scene is trying to do. I mean, if if he really does still have this kind of level of affection for his ex-wife, then. Why, Why frame her for too? murder? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Um, we'll actually come to the fact that the ending seems to have been undone twice for this film. It's, it's undone again in the next film. But Nick uh, Kieslowski had said that he... This is this is from Wikipedia, and there's a lot of wrong information on Wikipedia about Kieslowski films in particular, as far as I can tell. <laughs> so be careful with this one. But Kieslowski said that he was dissatisfied with the ending shot previously and wanted her to seem less of a monster. 
And I still kind of think it kind of undercuts it because, well, she is a monster. She was a flaky, terrible, terrible person, uh, capricious, evil, and mental, clearly, because yeah. she set fire to her own shop so that her husband would be put in prison for arson. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, you know, you've kind of set up her as a monster, you're going to need to do a lot, but also it undercuts very much his activities rather than changes her character yeah. of having him yeah. do that at the end and also risk being caught. <laughs> yeah. This, this is only just a few minutes after his brother, um, who's given him the stuff to presumably bribe the person he goes with, because he just, well, the next time you see him after he goes in the gate, it's gone. So presumably it's a bribe. Um, his brother said, come away from the window. Um, if you, you don't want to be seen, if you get caught, basically we're all going to prison. And then he walks into a prison. <laughs> so he can spy at this yeah. moment he is put in prison. You know, this film does not make much sense at the end. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, that was very strange, but I still really en- enjoyed it. But um, perhaps cinematically, it, as you said, Scott, it, it's perhaps the hardest one to defend. Yes. <laughs> but um, and yet, in many ways, more conventional than the rest, but certainly of the three three colours films the one I enjoyed the most yeah as, yes I, I agree it's uh, this it is a straightforwardly enjoyable and it's pretty funny and as a lot of comedies it can get away with making some pretty bold lumps jumps of uh, <laughs> logic and reason because it's trying to be funny more than it is trying to be um, a realistic character study or anything like that so it it, it it works on its own goals. I think it achieves all of its own goals and uh, becomes enjoyable for it. Oh, so you have like the um, speaking of your Bobcat Goldthwait fella. Um, speaking, speaking of, of Zamakovsky, yeah, yeah um, partly because he looks like Bobcat Goldthwait, but also he's, he's got like a comedy actor face. Yeah, that you can never take the film seriously anyway. I think with that actor in the role. Yeah, but as for a comic actor, it works just fine. Yeah, yeah. So we round things off then, with three colours red. The final part of Kishlovsky's Tracular trilogy, Rouge, is set in Geneva, where young model with asshat boyfriend, Valentin, <laughs> Irene Jacob, is about to hit the big time. Distracted while driving one night, she hits a dog in the road and, after very awkwardly lifting it into her car, goes in search of the animal's owner to ask if she should take it to the vet. Instead of taking the dog that she hit with her car directly to a vet, like a thinking person. <laughs> the dog is owned, and immediately disowned, by Joseph Kern, Jean-Louis Trantignon, a retired judge, and I'm afraid to say, yet another right creepy bastard. He spends his days listening to all of the phone calls of his neighbours, why they are all on the phone all of the time, and why they all use cordless phones, is never addressed, <laughs> probably since the answer would be, narrative convenience stock contrivance <laughs> or um quick look over there something shiny as was the style at the time undermining a career in which he enforced the law with a retirement which he breaks it with abandon he had seemingly little contact with other humans at least up until the point that the beautiful dog basher comes calling Valentine. it's my tinder profile that is <laughs> Valentine is of course appalled by his voyeurism and goes straight off to inform his neighbours and then doesn't, but instead forms a friendship with the creepy old bastard. One could read this in a number of ways, including suggesting that we're all voyeurs deep down, 
But again, I come back to the idea of right creepy bastard wish fulfillment, which, you know, fits rather better than most other readings. <laughs> While this is comfortably the weakest of the Twackler trilogy for me, I still enjoyed watching it, and I think much of that has to do with the acting. While Irene Jacob doesn't have an enormous amount to work with character-wise, she still has much more than the complete non-entity that her, was her character's in La Double Vie de Véronique. Though, when she uttered the line, I feel something important is happening around me and it scares me, I scoffed, thinking, no, it really isn't, so I wouldn't worry about that. <laughs> but Jean-Louis Trantignon manages to bring a level of engagement and sympathy to his character that is hardly merited. Watching his and Jacob's friendship bloom, despite its clear unlikeliness, is rewarding, as is the recalibration of his moral compass thanks to her influence, despite this also being hard to believe. It may be the weakest of the three in plotter character, but Rouge wins in the acting stakes. As with the other two instalments, the film looks wonderful, with the vibrant and saturated nature of the film's title colour meaning that its presence is the most striking as well as echoing the warmth evoked by Rouge's ostensible theme of fraternity, even if that theme is not actually evident in the film at all, mm. it brings some welcome colour compared to the relatively muted Bleu and Blanc. Much of the film's good work, though, is undone by an ending scene in which, out of nowhere, the main characters of all three films are smashed together in a tragedy, and for no good reason that I can discern. It also seems to be at odds with the ending of Tracolour Blanc, it's clearly following the director's recurring theme of unconscious interconnectedness, but it's a particularly ham-fisted way of doing it. People's lives can intersect and destiny brings people together or some such nonsense. So I'll just stick in the sinking of the Herald of Free Enterprise off of Zubrugi here. That'll do. <laughs> it's woefully out of place. As I've mentioned, Kishlovsky used recurring themes of interconnectedness and destiny, however much bollocks the idea of destiny actually is, and this film begins with much subtler and more interesting ways of suggesting this. When Valentine calls her Pratt of a boyfriend, a phone rings in the nearby flat of Jean-Pierre Lurie's Auguste, the young, newly qualified judge whose path almost, but never quite, crosses with the Valentines throughout the film, which makes the way that they are eventually brought together seem even more inept and forced. This was Kishlovsky's last film, and that final scene makes me feel like he had run out of ideas or possibly interest. No, probably neither are true, but it's a bum note to bow out on. Yeah, um, I don't, I don't think I actually mentioned it in the other couple of films. There's a few scenes where they're sort of crossing over into each other, um, but those scenes are Vaguely. entirely irrelevant to the actual story contained in either of those films, so it's almost not worth mentioning, but it is so obnoxious in this one at the ending yeah the, the, the last what was that five minutes of this film were just kind of ugh, right off the rails um, offensively so yeah, actually um, I mean before that obviously it's the best of the three colours films because it has two cool dogs and puppies <laughs> I really should have beaten Paul Fiction I had no dogs yeah, not a single one even Reservoir Dogs didn't have any dogs in it, I don't think so. Uh, but anyway, uh, Three Colours Red, I actually liked, probably more than you did by the sound of it, um, I might have, if I was ranking them for some reason, I'd, I enjoyed all of them, but I might actually put this a little bit above blue um, because it's kind of interesting. Um, it's one of the few of his films where the creepy bastard is actually presented as a creepy bastard and not as a love interest, which is 
I suppose a good thing, <laughs> in a way. Um, yeah, but also suggest that had they not been a part in age, they would have been a love interest, and also possibly um, <laughs> the the young lawyer is actually him because the timelines may not actually be real. And, uh, I don't know. But <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but yes, uh, really strong acting performances, which kind of helps, and the, the kind of the, the whole sort of voyeuristic thing is interests me in, in a way that the way that it's kind of presented and the way that they discuss things around it um, it has more meat in the actual supposed thematic uh, content of it than most of the other films I think um, in as much as it actually presents a few ideas that it could then you can either defend or pick apart it actually says something in, in the actual text of the film rather than the metatext or subtext of it um, this one does actually say something which you can either, either agree or disagree with so it does present you with something that you can then work with so that's a, that's a change if nothing else um, uh, but yes you're right it's um, it, it is perhaps in kind of conventional judging it sort of ways the weakest of these films um, Certainly, I, I I kind of enjoyed it more in spite of itself in a lot of times, uh, rather than because it is. It, I think again, it's just another film. Very good acting performances, and that makes it a lot easier to to get over some of the hurdles that it's presenting. Um, yeah, that, it helps. Yeah, um, the the kind of narrative when it becomes sort of more focused towards the kind of love aspects and the kind of fate towards the end of it. Yeah, it it does sort of lose me by that point. Um, but I think. Perhaps by that point, I'd kind of already made my mind upon it. It was just interesting the way that it was presenting these kind of themes, and dogs are cool. So <laughs> there's that. Yes, um, I wouldn't say I disliked any of the Three Colours uh, films, so it was certainly worth going back and watching them. But I do feel, as I've said with, I think, all these films now, I just... I, I, just, I was expecting to be challenged a bit more on the kind of thematic content and that sort of that kind of nature of his work and uh, to be honest I don't feel like I got that with more or less any of these films um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I've have I missed this entirely I've had a tiring couple of weeks maybe I've just not been in the receptive mood to deal with it but I think from what you're saying it sounds like you've had more or less the same um, issues with sounds me like it, yeah. it's like these films I, I think I could I pretty much like them all um, Double Life of Veronique perhaps aside but even that one I, I still found something to appreciate in it and certainly the artistic side of things the the way that it's shot the way that it's filmed a lot of the, the kind of more production aspects of it I found consistently really good yeah I don't think you can say any of them are bad films mm, yes um, maybe deeply unsatisfying films or weird films or mm-hmm. didn't like them but bad would certainly not be a word I would use yeah, and, and given how much I normally veer towards liking narratives over anything else yeah, I, I'm in a way surprised I liked them all as much as I did <laughs> but I just didn't feel like I got a lot more from it than that, I was expecting to get a bit more out of this, I was expecting to see something a bit that connected with me on some kind of level and this didn't it's just a bunch of films that I can appreciate which is fine, you know that's good I like films that I like but uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't changed by any of my experiences here, I didn't feel anything I didn't feel many emotions as I was going through this, it was just, they were just good films and um, I was expecting or hoping at least to be blown away by some of them and instead I just got a, yeah. a lot of good films Celebi. Yeah, I'm um, a sort of similar place myself to it's um, yeah, 
I don't know if I was expecting more, but I was certainly hoping for more. Yes. Particularly with the reputation they have. Absolutely, yeah. I thought, well, they're going to be amazing. Like, mm -hmm. they were fine, I guess. (laughs) Some maybe a bit more than fine, but I I enjoyed watching them. I don't regret watching them. It's quite interesting they've done it, but it's like, I think my overarching feeling over this, like, is that it? Yeah, yeah. Like, more, please, more, bigger, better, something, I don't know, just, uh, it's vaguely frustrating, um, as I was expecting more. Yeah, I mean, put it this way, I'd, I'd be expecting off the back of this to go into watching Decalogue. I'm now not going to do that, and I suspect I probably never will. Uh, That's funny, you should say that. I, I got Decalogue, <laughs> um, and I thought, I watched that. Like, eh, okay, yeah, that's going to sit on the shelf for as long as um, Three Colours did now, I think. Yes. <laughs> uh, which is a pity. Although, actually, I don't know, I might watch the first Decalogue because they're shorter than films. That's true. Um, 50, 60 minutes, I think. I might watch the first one. If the first one grabs me, I might watch it, but if I still feel kind of underwhelmed by that, mm-hmm. as I have by several of these, I think maybe I'll, I'll not bother. Um, yeah. Disappointing in the end. Um, just to pop back to three colours for a moment, Scott, too. Um, mm-hmm. Explain the bottle banks to me. Oh, well, that's uh, the the deep thematic element of being old. There's been a few actual, I think, in at least four of these films, there's shots of old women, like with yeah, like very like doubled in... over, struggling to walk across the frame. And this one, they're shock- walking across the frame and then putting a, struggling to put a bottle inside a bottle bank. And... I don't know if there's some significance to it's in red. I believe is the only one where someone actually the, the lead character yeah, goes and helps puts the bottle in. Yeah, yeah. Is it? See, I'm but if there is any significance to that, I don't really get it. <laughs> yeah. They're they're very conspicuous, mm-hmm. um, particularly when it's the, they're generally next to these massive green bottle banks. Uh, so you know that kind of draws your attention yeah. in the frame anyway and then you see this old shuffling person and you see it with Le Double de Vernique there's the old woman with her shopping mm-hmm. at first um, but then lots of other people have noticed this but apparently I haven't noticed it very well because they're saying um, there's this same old woman in three films is that mm-hmm. no it's three different people one yeah. of them's a man <laughs> yes you're not paying very good attention. So if you can't even tell that one of these people is a man and they're three different people, um, I'm not taking your opinion for it. Um, so I, I would like to know what it means. I, I did manage to find, after, you know, um, 90% of people, so either 90% of people um, didn't notice that they're the same, not the same person, um, or perhaps more likely they found the one person who wrote the thing about it on IMDb or Wikipedia mm. and just copied it Craig uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, there is I did find a quote somewhere from a, a quote attributed to Kuzlovsky but I don't know how accurate this is apparently he was asked about the motif and he replied all they want to do is remind us that someday we might be too old to get a bottle into a recycling bin. <laughs> Which is absolutely the classic metaphor for age, right? Yes. Yes, it is. So, um, I hope that if that was him, he was taking the piss <laughs> and he just didn't want, he was like being David Lynchian and didn't want to tell what he meant. <laughs> um, or, or, it kind of sounds fake though because it's not your classic age metaphor. No. And it's not a particularly universal, compelling or um, relatable one, I'm thinking. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah that's a weird one Uh, 
but I wondered if you had any other further insight into the repeating theme of seeing an old person bent over struggling to put bottles in a bottle bank, but no. Let me get this straight. You wanted insight and you asked me. (laughs) What's your deal, bro? No, no, no. Have I I done bad? (laughs) I'm no one's source for insight. Um, No, uh, I have no no concept as to what he was aiming at with that one. Yes, so that brings us to the end of this discussion. Um, Thank you very much for your attention. We'll be back in a few days with talk about another trilogy called Trilogy. Uh, yes, <laughs> one where the interactions between the characters actually matter. Yes. <laughs> the interaction between the stories, sort of the point. Yes. It should be quite interesting. I've been looking forward to seeing them, um, having, you know, seen it in the cinema and then bought the DVD and not watched that in 15 years. So, <laughs> yay. Because <sighs> I'm smart like that. <laughs> Uh, so if you would like to get in touch with us with um, any of the points we've raised here or indeed anything else then you can do probably the easiest way would be Twitter that's at FuzzOnFilm or give us the old emails at podcast.fuzzonfilm.com uh, Yes, we'll be back with you soon but until then I shall say goodbye and I'm sure that Drew will do so do, 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 do so too do so too do so too do do that though don't they do <laughs> Uh, yes, fairly well. <laughs> <laughs>